This is The Bittersweet Life. Thanks for joining us. A quick thank you to Molly for recently becoming a supporter of the show on Patreon. And thank you, Teresa, for the postcard. A wonderful surprise. If you want to connect to the show or donate, look for links in the show notes or visit thebittersweetlife.net. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I'm joined by Jennifer Dassel. She's a curator of modern and contemporary art and the host of the Art Curious podcast, which I've been listening to for years. She frequently lectures on art locally and nationally, and she has a new book out called Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill. I mean, at last. We've been talking about doing a show together for years. and. Yes. All it took was you writing an entire book for us to finally do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I was able to help facilitate. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. So this is a big book that's dense and full of great stories, so we're not going to cover even a fraction of it. But uh, I wanted to talk to you about the subtitle, The Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful. And I was wondering how you came up with those three categories. Ooh, that's a really good question. I came up with them originally when I was starting the podcast, which was back in 2016. And I knew that I wanted to do a show, obviously, about art history, but I wanted it to be a little bit different. There aren't a lot of art history podcasts out there. There are a few, and they're all great, of course. I love them. But a lot of them tend to be more straightforward in terms of wanting to talk a little bit about what this terminology means and what's so important about this painting. And it's more like a straightforward art history kind of conversation or discussion, or it's very casual listener conversations where people are just talking about art they like and it's very relaxed. I knew I wanted mine to be based more around a story. So I wanted it to be a story that I personally would find compelling if I was looking for a story in art history. And I'm one of those people where I really love the weird stories and the ones that kind of make you go, ooh, tell me more. And for me, I thought, you know what? That sounds fun. I'm There's a lot of those in art I'm sure that we can share. And so that was really how I came up with the subtitle. I thought it's going to be unexpected. It's going to be different than anything you hear in a normal art history class or lecture. It's going to be slightly odd because, again, I wanted that weird side to maybe grasp you and pull you in. And then strangely wonderful. Um, I think I wanted the rule of threes, so I wanted everything in there. But I didn't want it to necessarily always be um, a creepy or bad or weird thing. I wanted it to be a surprise positive thing that you could find out about a work of art. Hmm. That's how it came together. Yeah, I love it. So you start out in this book with the unexpected category. You end up dividing the book up by these categories, which probably was difficult in general, because uh, they could all fit into every single category in some ways. That's exactly right. <laughs> but you start, you start the unexpected category with the Impressionists, with Monet, and kind of how, I mean, Monet, when we were kids, was just everywhere, you know, in every mall. I don't know tons about the Impressionists, but what could you tell us about them? Yeah, I definitely agree with you in that, to me, they were all a little bit boring. It was like, here's a painting of some flowers. Here's a painting of a girl with an umbrella. And to me, it just seemed very pretty for the sake of pretty. And while that's not a bad thing by any means, 
when I was growing up, I would look at that and just think like, oh, that's the kind of work of art that's not very challenging. It's the kind of art that my mom really liked. So I, I call this chapter, your mom's favorite painter was a badass. <laughs> and that's because I didn't know. And I think this is something that gets overlooked a lot even now, unless you know a little bit about art history. If you look at an Impressionist painting, we still are really drawn in by the beauty of the work. But at the time that those works were being created, they actually were considered quite ugly or vulgar or just really a shock to the traditions of art. People hated them. And the name Impressionist actually came about as a critique. It was a criticism from an art critic who came to see the very first Impressionist exhibition in the late 19th century. And he said, oh, these paintings, they're not actual real depictions of anything. They're just impressions. Like he was trying to say, it's just a, a wisp of a thing. It didn't mean anything. And the artist said, oh my gosh, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to grab a moment. So these were people who were trying to paint quickly, trying to really capture the change of light or the change of weather and show how it could look very different from one moment to the next. So a haystack in sunrise would look totally different from a haystack in the wintertime at sunset, for example. So they were really revolutionary and were very much pushing the boundaries of art at the time. I think we forget about that sometimes. Yeah. What was the Salon of the Refused? Oh my gosh, this was so great. I think it was 1863. And the Salon in Paris, really up until the debut of the 20th century, the Paris Salon was one of the number one events in art in all of Europe. And so it was an annual art show that was basically determined by the French Academy. So if you were an artist, to be anyone, you had to either teach or learn at the French Academy and or you had to have your works accepted at their annual exhibition, which was called the Salon. And in the early 19th, or excuse me, 1860s, uh, there was this large amount of artists who were really like the Impressionists, trying to push the boundary of art, trying to experiment more and just try new things. And they were flat out refused entry. Their works were denied from being shown at this exhibition where to really make it an art, you had to be shown. And there was such a public uproar, not only by the artists themselves, but also by people who wanted their work supported, that the um, the ruler at the time, who was Napoleon III, actually came by and said, okay, we're gonna have a separate exhibition. We're still going to have the Paris Salon, but we're gonna have a state-sanctioned second show. And it was called the Salon of the Refused. So anybody whose work was officially not allowed to be shown at the Paris Salon, then got shown at this really monumental, very historic art exhibition. And that kind of changed everything in art at that point. Did people turn out for it? Just regular Parisians? Yes. And from what I've read, it seems like I get the feeling that it's a little bit like watching, uh, like hate watching a movie on Netflix or Hulu, <laughs> where you're watching something because you think this is just going to be terrible and it's just going to be fun because it's going to be so bad because it seems like it was very much split where some people loved it and other people just went to gawk at what they considered to be the crazy new art. But it really still had a lasting impression and no pun intended. <laughs> and it showed that these kind of exhibitions could be important and make a difference in showing kind of different edgy avant-garde work and still being appreciated by the general public. Wow, that's interesting. So you say in the very beginning of the book that you grew up very uninterested in art. Yes. How do you come to dedicate your whole working life to it? 
it's 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 crazy. I often tell people that it's um, depending on what you believe, if you believe in God or the universe or fate or whatever it is, I really feel like there was a hand that was at work and it wasn't of my own making. And it's crazy that I'm here because, as you say, I did not grow up with any interest in art. If you had told me that this would be my vocation and my avocation, no way I would have thought that you were crazy. But it basically started with a fluke, which was that when I was a freshman in college, I was registering for courses and I was a science major at that point. So everything I needed was, you know, like math and calculus, statistics, things like that. And I needed one course to fulfill a humanities requirement during my first semester. And everything I wanted to get into was completely booked. So I tried different writing classes, English classes, music, things like that. And all of those courses were full and I started getting very frustrated. I just said like, okay, I give up. And I made an appointment to talk to a course counselor, went to her office and she sat me down and she was so relaxed. It was kind of infuriating because she was like, this is not a big deal. It's going to be fine. And she pulled out what, this was the late nineties. So she pulled out a physical course catalog that was like big as a phone book. And then I'm always telling people, I'm like, do you know what a phone book is? But it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a huge, thick text and alphabetized with all the courses that were available. And she opened it up to A and started at the very beginning of the alphabet and very quickly turned to art history. And she said, everybody takes art history. Let's just see if there's room. There might be you know, an opening. And I didn't even get to say no. She basically just registered me without even asking. She just went whole hog for it. And so I found myself taking my first art history class <laughs> and I wasn't excited. I was not looking forward to it at all. And then a few weeks later, I started realizing that it became a class I looked forward to very quickly because I had a really engaging professor who told these incredible stories about cave paintings and sculptures from ancient Greece and Rome. And uh, it transformed it for me. And that really started me on this path. And two years later, I officially changed my major to art history and haven't looked back. Wow, that's amazing. So obviously you're fascinated with the stories behind the art, but is there, when you're looking at art, is there a type of art that you're most partial to? Oh, that's such a good question too. And it's such a hard question because I feel like I'm one of those people that loves a little bit of everything. So um, my specialty when I was in school was 18th and 19th century French painting. So prior to the Impressionists, but people like Gustave Courbet, Edward Manet, people who were more known to be um, realists or the romantics in France at the time. Those were the artists that I was really drawn to. But sometimes I just daydream and think, you know, if I could go back and I could do it all over again, I would love to study 17th century Chinese scroll painting, which was a class that I took when I was an undergraduate that is still one of my favorites. I love medieval tapestries. I love, oh, I love everything. <laughs> ancient, ancient Buddhist works of art, Tibetan scrolls, those kind of things. I, I love everything. And then in my day job, I focus almost entirely on 20th and 21st century art. So I get to do a little bit of, I kind of get to do a more global look in my daily work now. And then because I don't want to overlap too much with my job, I don't cover that era. No contemporary art hardly at all on the podcast. 
let's talk about Carafaggio, which I know only appears on three pages of your book. I know. And I know that you're not a Caravaggio expert, but because he is the muse of the bittersweet life, everything we do, any kind of promotional stuff, all our logo is all uh, wrapped up in him. Totally. Not to mention the tours on the street that we've done about his life in Rome. So tell us one nugget about him that you find very interesting. Oh my gosh. I feel like he is just so fascinating as a person in general. Um, I love the story that I've been hearing a lot about his death recently, which is, well, I guess recent as in the last maybe five years or 10 years, which is that he was possibly killed as, um, because we know that he was a murderer. He murdered someone either purposefully or accidentally. The jury, I guess, is still out in a duel. And that they say that he was possibly killed either because of an infection that someone tried to stab him and then he died after infection with that wound or that someone did actually forcefully kill him as a kind of uh, honor killing. So it might be the woman whose lives they were trying to defend in that original duel or it could have possibly been the man that he was dueling that his family came to seek revenge upon Caravaggio. And I think that's really interesting. I love these kind of stories. And we don't know for sure. I know that some art historians have put together uh, a few different theories, like I mentioned, but no one specifically knows. And so the mystery, I think, is still out there, which is really cool. But I love Caravaggio. Yeah. Do you ever think you'll do an entire episode on him for your podcast? Yes, for sure. Inquiring minds want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Um, I've done a small one that was more of like a mini episode. And that was a little bit about his death, but not more expansive, more broadly. I'd love to talk about his works more specifically. And that's something I haven't done yet. And that's the great thing about art, though, is there's just a vast amount of stuff that could be covered on the show, which is really fun. A quick aside from the interview. October is coming up quick, and with it, some changes. From now on, all Patreon supporters, no matter what donation amount, from $5 up, get access to bonus episodes, at least two a month. Also, regular donors on both Patreon and PayPal at $10 a month or more will be invited to a live event posted online, unfortunately, of course. Come watch us record an episode live, and maybe even participate with your stories. There are details to come, but if you can donate, and you've been meaning to, jump on soon, so you don't miss it. Also, we have a new monthly newsletter, insights into what we're reading and thinking, book giveaways, and more. Sign up, and we'll use your email for nothing else. Send us an email at bittersweetlife at mail.com. Or send us a note through social media. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. Let's spend some time together this fall. What do you say? Now, back to the show. So under your your chapter labeled Slightly Odd, the section Slightly Odd, yeah. um, your very first chapter in that section is about the Mona Lisa, the possible thefts and forgeries of the Mona Lisa. And there's so many twists and turns, of course, we can't go down the entire story that you you tell. But first off, just why would you say this painting is so famous? Oh, my gosh. You know, I have had this conversation so many times with myself, because especially when you're first studying art history and you get to the point where it's like, OK, now we're talking about the Mona Lisa. You look at the picture, especially if it's blown up on a huge movie screen in front of you in class, and you're like, this is not that pretty. It's not that (laughs) enticing. I think it's famous more because of what happened to it. Because from what I've read, 
when you're looking at the history of the Louvre as an institution, and when you're looking at the collections that were part of that institution when the Louvre first opened in the late 18th century as a museum in France, people liked her, they were interested in her as a work of art, but she was really considered to be one masterpiece among many. There really wasn't a need to really single her out. And it wasn't, from what I've read, it wasn't until about the middle of the 19th century that people started getting a little more interested in her. And the first was that it was the romantic period in Europe. So we're talking about art and literature and things that were really all about emotion and getting into more of like the mysterious details of someone's face and beauty and how that would make you feel. And so people started kind of zooming in on her smile at that particular time and saying, you know, oh, she's so mysterious and I wanna know why she's smiling in that weird half smile way. What do you think she's thinking? And so it was at that point that she started with this little uptick in popularity, but I don't think it really was until she was stolen in 1911 and she was gone for about two and a half years before it was eventually recovered and then she was brought back to the Louvre. And it was really that huge theft that became world news, front page news all over the world. And then the return just skyrocketed her into huge stardom. So I think it was really that single event that just transformed her in our eyes. How important to painting do you think it was to Leonardo da Vinci who painted it? That's another really good question because we know for a fact from uh, inventories throughout his lifetime, including inventories of the things that remained after he died that went into first possession of one of his students and people that he worked with, his apprentices, and then also finally into the hands of Francois I, the French king, whom he worked for at the very end of his life. We know that he kept the Mona Lisa in his possession from the moment he started painting it all the way throughout his life. So it's a almost about 20 years during that period of time. So I think it was about 16 or 17 years that he actually toiled on it. He started painting it around 1503, 1504, and then stopped and then would pick it up again and stop and start. And the general thought is that it's probably a portrait of a woman named Lisa Gherardini, who was the wife of a famous Florentine merchant. So it's probably a commission and it's probably a portrait of this very specific person. So it's very weird to see that it would end up still with the artist and not part of that family. You know, it didn't end up going to that family. And no one really knows exactly why that is. It could be a number of things. Maybe Leonardo felt attached to it in some way, or maybe the people who commissioned it didn't like it for some reason. It, it could be really anything. But it must have had a real strong pull on him because he did not let it go. He kept it throughout his life and would continually pick it up after some time and work on it. Hmm. So I don't know. It's interesting. You have a whole other sort of sidebar in this chapter that's about why she's smiling in a half smile. Yeah. Is, I guess, another thing that people are studying to try to figure out why. What did you find out? Oh, my gosh. I think it's so interesting because it's one of those things that we can never get a real firm handle on because it's like, A, why does she look like that specifically? And or B, why did Leonardo specifically paint her like that? Was he trying to emote something in particular or did she really have that kind of half smile? And something that I think is really interesting is that in the last, I would say probably 20 years especially, some doctors and scientists have really come to the forefront and they've done their own analyses of the painting. And so several doctors in the last few years have said, 
that they think it might be a certain kind of policy that happens that can afflict some women after they give birth that can partially paralyze one side of the face. And it was known that the painting, in theory, again, if it is Lisa Garadini, she did have a son about a year or two before the painting was begun. So that seems like that could possibly be an explanation. And another doctor also said that that kind of palsy is something that happens frequently, not only in people who might have depression or be prone to a certain kind of depression or a um, thyroid disorder, both of things which can also be triggered after having had a baby. So I think those are totally plausible. Again, we don't have any actual backup or medical uh, information for Lisa Garadini to back this up, but I, it makes a lot of sense. And that whole topic of kind of medical interpretations of art, I think, is really fascinating. And I think people are still at the very beginning of that. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of medical medical art combos. It's interesting because in history or in science, there's so many things that you have to keep looking into that you might never really have an answer for. Exactly. And what I also like is that it seems like um, we're in this society many times where people like to put art and science or math and engineering on this spectrum where they seem like they're apart from each other. We have people trying to make the connections with STEAM. So you have science, technology, engineering, art, and math. For many people, that's always still like a, what are you doing putting art in the middle there? But it really is seen as so integral and they're so connected. And so it makes a lot of sense to me, just like when you're trying to be a good scientist or a good mathematician or a good engineer, you need to be very visual and work with a physical object. And you need to really learn not only how to look, but how to really see and those two things, I, even though they're synonyms, they can actually be really different. Looking can be more kind of casual and seeing can be more in depth and really understanding what you're seeing. So, uh, so yeah, tangent, I love that. Leonardo, a fine example of that combination, actually. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about him as a person? Yeah, I always say, you know, I think he's gotta be the guy who they used the term Renaissance man for, because <laughs> he was so interested in everything. And he was a real polymath. He knew how to not only create incredible works of art, or even just experiment with things that he never really had uh, a true idea of how to do. So I'm thinking about his Last Supper in Milan. He never did a fresco before. And so he just did it. And it's Obviously, over time, it's crumpled and it's faded and it had to be greatly restored. But at the same time, I always think you've got to give this guy credit because he just said, OK, I'm I'm just going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. But at the same time, he was an engineer. He was a scientist. He was a poet. He was somebody who wrote these incredibly beautiful love letters, really, not necessarily people, but to nature. He was one of the first people to think about fossils the way that we think about them now. He invented or came up with a concept for a helicopter, scuba gear, things like that, hundreds of years before we actually were able to bring them to reality. And he just seemed like he had this need to just be so curious and study anything and everything around him. And I think that's pretty cool. The Renaissance is such an interesting period of time, but when you study art, you find that there's these pockets of real genius that happens like in different parts of the globe at different times. Have you come up with any idea of why there's so much talent in certain places at certain times? 
Oh, that is such a good question, too. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those moments where it's, there has to be a combination of a few different things, I would think. You have to be in a society that's somewhat stable so that you are able to focus on something that's not just meeting your daily needs of food, water, shelter, that kind of thing. You need to be able to have the opportunity to think and to be creative and let your mind roam a little bit. So I'm thinking about, especially thinking about the Renaissance, I'm thinking about Florence and Rome in particular, and that you had some generally benevolent people who were in charge at that point. So the Medicis, uh, especially in Florence, were very supportive of the arts. And so they really allowed for this fruitful environment for people to try new things. And they were able to back those commissions with money. And that really helps. So I think having a stable place with that financial backing, that probably makes a huge difference. I'm sure there are a lot of other things that would bring those to fruition throughout the world. And I would love to know more, but those are my my first two hunches for sure. Yeah. One of the central questions in the Mona Lisa chapter is whether or not the Mona Lisa that we see when we visit Paris is fake. Yes. Why do some people think it's fake? It's one of the craziest theories that I've ever heard. And it's actually the inspiration for why I started the podcast when I did, because this was a theory that was posited by one of my art history professors when I was in college. And she said, you know, you can go see it. That would be great. But if you go and you see her, just know that you can't get very close and don't worry about it. It's not a big deal if you can't get close to her because she's fake. And it's just such a weird conspiracy theory. But at the same time, this was a professor whose opinions I really trusted, and she seemed very not inclined to um, to conspiracy or controversy. So it always struck me as being really out of character for her. So I wanted to st- discover why she thought that. And her first reason, she had a couple reasons that she thought it was fake. The first is that she relied very heavily on this story that appeared in the 1930s in the Saturday Evening Post, which is a really interesting place for this article to appear, but it was an interview with a man who was basically purportedly the mastermind behind the 1911 theft when the Mona Lisa was stolen for those two and a half years. And he said that he worked with an art forger and their business was to make six identical copies of the Mona Lisa, so they had to steal it. And then after they had created those six copies, They then went to different portions of the rich people, especially in Europe and America, and said, oh, the Mona Lisa, I stole it. Here, you can buy it. And so no one knew that they had these multiple copies throwing around while they still had the real one in their possession. It's a totally crazy, really, to me, super bogus, very movie-like story. I don't really believe that this is true. And it came out, again, in this one periodical about 20 years after the theft. So it's take it very much with a grain of salt. But it was very weird to me that my professor didn't. She was very firmly in agreement that it was actually stolen and then copied. And so her thought was, if you stole the Mona Lisa and you made these believable copies, why would you ever put it in a position that it could be found or returned and you could keep the original? So that was the first thing she relied on. The second is that it's very well known that it was uh, stolen in 1911, but there have been rumors that it was stolen again a second time, which was the thing that my professor firmly believed. And it's a little bit more tricky to narrow down, but there is an art historian named uh, Noah Charney who his business specialty is about art theft and art 
uh, really the, the business of art being in danger, I suppose you could say. And he stipulated that the Nazis did end up stealing the work during World War II, or they could have already stolen a fake that the Louvre was known to have had on hand. And the Louvre did eventually come out and say that they had what was called a close copy or a replica. We don't know exactly how the Louvre got this into their possession. We don't know exactly who created it. There is thought that maybe it could have been another version of the work that Leonardo himself did. And there are multiple, what you could call sister or twins to the Mona Lisa that are known to be in existence. If you Google them, you'll see that they don't look exactly the same by any means, but there is something that was considered close enough at the Louvre. And Noah Charney states that he believes that the Louvre actually bolted up and locked away the real Mona Lisa, sent it out into a chateau somewhere in the French countryside during World War II, and then allowed the Nazis to come in and steal that replica. And that was one that was eventually found by the Monuments Men in the late part of the war. So it could have been actually stolen. It could have been a fake one that was stolen. But then who knows? Either way, that fake one was eventually returned to the Louvre. So I always think, you know, this is the most well-known work of art on the planet. It's just instantly recognizable to even my son, who when he was a toddler would look at a book and say, Mona Lisa. So he knows exactly what it is. So there is that little conspiracy theory part of me that goes, okay, I kind of can see why you'd want to just lock it away and put a replica on view because it's infinitely priceless. Right. And it's been stolen before. It's been stolen before. Again, could have possibly been forged. And I always point to the fact that when you go, if you are lucky enough to go see it at the Louvre, you not only have all the things you would expect, like two security guards that are posted there 24-7, you have all your security cameras, the glass that's in front of it, you have a partition and you are kept at a distance of about a good five or six feet. So you can't even get up close to look at the painting. And it's small, so you know you wish you could get closer, but you can't. And then I always tell people, you know, and then you have the crowd of about 100 people, at least used to be before COVID, standing there in front of you with their phones trying to take pictures of it. So it's like, even if you try to get close to it, you can't. So if you were even a really savvy art conservator, for example, or a restorer or a curator or somebody who knows really what a real Renaissance painting is supposed to look like, you couldn't even get close enough to confirm it. I still believe it's the real deal, personally, but do I have proof? No. And am I going to be able to get proof? No. Yeah. So since seeing the Mona Lisa in person is kind of an unpleasant experience. <laughs> yes. Can you suggest a piece of art that we should see instead oh, in that museum? That is such a great question. Oh, my gosh. It's like, how long do you have? Um, <laughs> you can only pick one. <laughs> I can only pick one. Okay. I'm going to say skip Mona Lisa. And to get that sensation of an incredible work by Leonardo, go see the Madonna of the Rocks, the Virgin of the Rocks. It's in an adjoining gallery, and it is a um, mother and child. I can't remember if it's with um, St. Anne also, or that might be the Virgin and Child of St. Anne. Never mind. But the Madonna of the Rocks, for sure, is a purely beautiful Leonardo. It's got more mystique to me, more mystery, and something that just grabs you even more than that half smile of Mona Lisa. And she's not mobbed half as much. That's a great answer. Obviously, there's a lot of myths surrounding artists a lot of stories 
a lot of things that may or may not be true. But where do all these mythical ideas about artists come from? Particularly ones who are really famous, like Raphael or Caravaggio or Leonardo da Vinci, since we're talking about him. All these stories, not just about them, but about their work and stuff. We just swirl in myths. Why? I think a lot of it really began in the Renaissance proper, which is really one of the first times, I think, in history where artists started really signing their names to works. This has been happening in small doses since the ancient world, but it really wasn't until the idea of humanism came about where it was like man is the center of all things and that was really what was going on during the renaissance that the artist became very ingrained and invested in their works of art that they started really saying you know i made this this is mine and that is i think the point in which the idea of romanticizing an artist and the idea of genius or artistic genius really started taking hold and then i think that was something that again just flowered to this incredible level once the 19th century rolled around with the romantics. I don't think it's something we have yet escaped from. And I still think there's so much having to do with like the idea of tortured genius, where we really just want to hold on to this idea of somebody who is suffering for their art, going, you know, against all odds, no matter all the things that they are dealing with and fighting for, and yet they're still creating these incredibly beautiful or moving works of art. I think that really comes down to that connection. Well, I did read a book recently that said that we often think that the romantics are behind us, but that we're really still living in the romantic period. What they kicked off is still how we think. I completely agree with that. That makes total sense to me. And by the way, one of the myths you say is that uh, Michelangelo didn't actually paint the entire Sistine Chapel on his back, which, come on, that's such a great myth. I know, I know. I... I always feel kind of bad in some ways that there are these little tales that I do tell that I'm like, I'm that person at the party in the corner who says, well, actually, and it's like total buzzkill because it's so much more fun to think about him laying on his back 20 feet up in the air. But no, he actually probably got a crick in his neck and just looked up while he was standing on his scaffold instead. But still amazing. Both sound miserable. (laughs) Both sound miserable. (laughs) What would you say you've learned about the artistic process from all the research you've done? Oh, that is such a good question, too. Um, I'd say I've learned that you not only have to have the inspiration, but you have to have the work. So it's it's that old adage, and I can't remember if it was Thomas Edison or who exactly said it, but it's, you know, the 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And I've seen that that is completely true. You have to put in the work, you have to put in the time. And even artists who we think of as completely artistic geniuses who were just born magically able to create these works of art, people that we ascribe that to, like Leonardo, like Michelangelo, like Caravaggio. It is true that probably they were born with some kind of innate talent, but they worked really hard to also learn and hone their skills. So they were all apprenticed to other painters so they could really get that active practice in. So I always tell people, if you're an artist or you're hoping to create anything, That's the biggest thing is you have to do the work. And I think that's true even of me learning how to podcast. You put in the time to try to figure out how to make it at least a little bit better than your last episode. And I think that's a huge thing for it. You just got to keep working. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Jennifer Dassel, she's a curator of modern and contemporary art and the author of 
a book in addition to her podcast, the Art Curious Podcast, called Art Curious Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History. Thanks so much for being on. Katie, this is awesome. Thank you so much. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.